Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Despite a lot of bad economic news that came out this week, both before and after I did my earlier podcast on the week, the markets actually held up pretty well. In fact, the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 were actually positive on the week, and the Dow Jones was barely negative. It fell less than one-tenth of 1%. The S&P was down less than a third of 1%. Moving in the opposite direction, the NASDAQ composite was up about a half a percent, and the Russell 2000 rose by one and a half percent, so the small caps doing the best, but the real action was in the most speculative names, the money-losing type companies that are excessively valued, those that dominate in the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation Fund, which was up 7% on the week, but the big gainers were crypto, Bitcoin, Look at the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust up 12.2% on the week as Bitcoin prices hit and briefly exceeded 25,000 per Bitcoin. As I am recording this podcast on a Saturday afternoon, we're back down at 24,650, but still a big gain on where we were last week. So again, investors are covering their shorts in the stocks and assets that fell the most in 2022, and they're taking profits in the stocks that did well in 2022. Gold prices went in the opposite direction of Bitcoin, down about 20 bucks an ounce or so on the week. We settled at $1,842 an ounce. Gold stocks also getting beaten up with the GDXJ down 3% and the GDX down 3.8%. It makes sense that gold and Bitcoin would be going in the opposite directions because they represent very different asset classes. Gold is a safe haven, store of value, inflation hedge, 
and Bitcoin is a highly speculative digital token. And that's what investors were buying on the week were extremely expensive, overpriced speculative assets like Bitcoin. One of the problems that gold stocks had on the week on Friday, Agnico Eagle reported its earnings and they actually reported record earnings. They've never had greater earnings than what was reported on Friday, but the markets were disappointed mainly because of the forward guidance with respect to rising costs. The cost of mining was going up and that brought the price of AEM stock down. At one point it was down about 10% on the day, but it did rally a bit to cut those losses somewhat by the close down 6.23%. But that's been a similar story with a lot of gold mining stocks that is rising costs. Why are their costs going up? Because of inflation. Why isn't gold going up in proportion or more than those costs? Because investors are still not worried about inflation. They still have confidence that the Fed is going to rein inflation in. And so the price of gold is not rising as much as the cost of mining it because investors still don't realize that inflation is here to stay and they're not pricing that future inflation into today's gold price. Because if they were, then the price of gold would be much higher than it is right now. And it wouldn't matter that mining costs were going up because the price of the gold that was being mined would be rising even faster. And so the record profits reported by Agnigo Eagle would have been even greater and the stock would have gone up instead of down. This is the same story in all sorts of industries. Nestle came out this week and warned that more price hikes are coming, even though they've already raised prices significantly. They said they have to raise them even more because the price hikes that they've already pushed through are not enough, that margins are still being pressured by rising costs, and they need to pass those costs on to their customers in the form of rising prices. So the people who are thinking that we've seen the worst of inflation are wrong. All we've seen is a small down payment on what's coming. We're going to see much higher prices in the months and years ahead. The Fed has barely made any progress in the war against inflation. In fact, it may have even gone backwards. Yes, we've had some temporary relief due to the initial pullback in commodity prices. But once commodity prices bottom out, they're going to be headed for new highs. And we're going to see just how much ground we've actually lost because the Fed hasn't even come close to raising interest rates high enough to restore inflation to 2%, nor have we gotten the required cooperation from the U.S. government. Because instead of reducing government spending and adopting a contractionary fiscal policy to help bring down inflation, deficit spending is rising despite Biden's lies to the contrary that he is reducing deficits. Deficits are increasing, and that is an expansionary fiscal policy that is adding fuel to the inflation fire. Looking at some of the economic data that the market shrugged off, the first one being the stronger-than-expected retail sales numbers that came out on Wednesday. And they're stronger than expected, not because the consumer is in better shape and is out buying more stuff. It's simply because inflation is driving the price of stuff that the consumers are buying to higher levels. So the consensus estimate was for an increase of 1.7% 
in January retail sales, and that would have followed a minus 1.1% number from December of 2022. Well, we actually got an increase of three full percentage points. That was way above estimates, clearly almost double what the estimate had been. And taking out vehicles, the estimate was for a rise of 0.7. Instead, we got a rise of 2.3%, triple estimates. And the prior month's number was actually revised to a slightly smaller number. It was negative 1.1, and now it was revised upward to negative 0.9. And if you take out vehicles and gasoline, instead of getting the increase of 0.6, we got an increase of 2.6, four times the estimate. And once again, the prior month's number was revised upward from minus 0.7 to minus 0.4. So this was much stronger than expected. There was initially a negative reaction in the markets to this number, but the markets ultimately shrugged it off and recovered. As I said, I don't look at this data as being strong. It is not adjusted for inflation. And so it doesn't mean that people are actually buying more. I think it simply means that they're paying more. And what's more troubling than the fact that people are paying more is that they're borrowing more to do it. We got data from the Federal Reserve that shows that in the fourth quarter of 2022, household debt hit a new all-time record high of $16.9 trillion. Households took on another $394 billion of debt during the quarter. That's a 2.4% increase. Even worse, credit card debt rose 6.6% to $986 billion during the quarter. That is the fastest quarterly growth in credit card debt ever since the Federal Reserve started measuring it back in 1999. And year over year, credit card debt soared by 15.2%. That's despite the fact that Americans were flush with stimulus money. They blew through their stimulus and they had to run up their credit card balances to afford to pay the higher prices that were resulting from inflation. Think about that. We almost have a trillion dollars in credit card debt. In fact, by now we probably do because these figures are only accurate until the end of last year. And here we are in mid-February. So for sure, Americans now have better than $1 trillion in credit card debt. Of course, a lot of this credit card debt is never going to get repaid we're going to start to see the delinquencies rate really surging as the year goes on, and that's going to be even more problematic for the economy. And of course, it's going to be a big problem for the lenders who are going to have to start writing down bigger losses based on the fact that they're not going to be able to get repaid on the money that they loan customers so that they can keep on buying more expensive food and energy and other things that have been impacted by inflation. Now, this surge in credit card debt, to me, evidences the fact that we don't really have a strong labor market. Most of the articles that I read that reported the increase in credit card debt attributed the rise in credit card debt to the strong labor market. They said because the labor market is so strong, Americans have the confidence to go out and buy things on credit. But that actually flies in the face of logic. Because if the labor market was really so strong, people's paychecks would be high enough that they wouldn't need to use credit 
to buy the things that they needed. They could actually afford to buy stuff without going deeper into debt, especially since interest rates are rising so much. You would think that consumers would be reluctant to take on more debt in a rising rate environment. The only reason they're doing it is because they really have no choice because we don't have a strong labor market. We have a weak labor market. If you're in a labor market where your wages are not keeping pace with inflation, that has to be characterized as a weak labor market. How can anybody say a labor market is strong when workers can't demand that their pay go up equal to inflation? In fact, if it really was a strong labor market, you would expect that workers have the upper hand and they could get real wage increases. They could force their employers to give them a raise that actually exceeds the cost of living. That would be a strong labor market. But if workers have no choice but to accept real pay cuts, because the only raise they can get doesn't even come close to the increase in the cost of living, that is a weak labor market. And that's what we have. We have a weak labor market in disguise. Everybody wants to pretend that it's strong, but the surge in credit card debt proves how weak this labor market is. And what it also proves is that the Fed is losing the battle against inflation, because as I've said before on this podcast, inflation is not just an expansion of the money supply. It's also an expansion of credit because credit gives you purchasing power. Credit helps fuel demand. So if credit is expanding, that's also inflationary. And that's what's happening. If the Fed was really making headway in fighting inflation, consumers would be borrowing less. Credit card debt would be going down, but it's not happening. And that's because even though rates have gone up, they haven't gone up nearly enough to discourage people from borrowing. That's what has to happen. Now, eventually that will happen, but so far that has not happened. In fact, when it comes to credit card borrowing, I think what's more important is that the Fed has to discourage lenders from lending, not consumers from borrowing, because consumers are so strapped, they're going to keep on borrowing. I don't even think they care at this point because they know they're not going to pay the money back. And so they're just borrowing because they have no choice. It's the lenders that have to realize that they're not going to get repaid. They have to cut back on credit. They have to take the credit out of the economy. So that even if consumers want to take on more debt to keep on spending, they don't have the option because the lenders won't provide them with the credit because they know they're not going to get repaid. And that will force consumers to cut back on their spending more substantially than they may already have done. Right now, consumers are able to continue to spend because they can borrow the money to do it. But that additional spending is fueling demand. The Fed needs to restrain demand, but it doesn't need to do it by putting people out of work. It needs to do it by causing people to stop spending and to save their paychecks instead of going deeper into debt. And that is what they would do if the credit card companies tightened up on credit and they haven't done that yet. And one of the main reasons that they haven't done that yet is credit is still cheap. Despite these rate hikes, credit is still plentiful and the Fed needs to do something to tighten it up by raising interest rates far more substantially, maybe by raising the reserve requirements, requiring banks to keep more of their deposits on reserve so there's less available to loan out to consumers to buy things using credit. That's what the Fed would need to be doing if it was truly serious about fighting inflation. 
but it's not serious because it knows if it got serious on fighting inflation, it would crash the economy. In fact, it would probably cause a financial crisis. That's why it's not serious, but it can never admit that. So it has to pretend that it's trying to fight inflation, even though it's still pursuing policies that are fueling the fire. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We got even more proof that the Fed is losing its fight against inflation when we got the much hotter than expected January producer price number. The expectation was for an increase of 0.4, and that would have reversed the minus number we got in December of 2022, which was minus 0.5. Now, first of all, that decline was revised upward to show a smaller decline of just 0.2. But instead of increasing by 0.4, producer prices actually shot up by 0.7. That was well above the upper end of the range, which went from a low of up 0.2 to a high of up 0.4. And that means that the year-over-year increase in producer prices, instead of coming out at 5.5, which had initially been expected, it came out at 6. And in fact, the year-over-year increase for December, which would have been the full year of 2022, was revised from up 6.2 to up 6.5. Again, this is like the CPI numbers. It was sequentially down year-over-year from the prior month, but the drop was much less than expected and the monthly increase was more than expected. Same story when you strip out food and energy. The prior month, December 2022, was originally reported as up 0.1. That was revised to up 0.3. And the 0.3 that was expected for January ended up being up 0.5, again, above the high end of the estimated range, which went from up 0.1 to up 0.4. And that means the year-over-year core producer price, instead of coming up at up 5, was up 5.4. And for the full year of 2022, we revised the increase from up 5.5 to up 5.8. In fact, even if you take out food and energy and trade services, the increase was 0.6. That's triple the 0.2% that had been expected. So overall, a very bad producer price number. In fact, the markets did react to it by going down. This was the worst day of the week for the Dow. It was down 430 points, about one and a quarter percent, an even bigger decline for the NASDAQ, which was down about 2%. But for this week, the markets would have had much bigger gains. But the reality is we should have had a bigger drop 
on Thursday, and it should have followed through on Friday. This is horrible news because, remember, the entire rally has been built on a foundation that the Fed is winning the fight against inflation, and as a result, will be able to stop hiking rates and probably begin reducing rates before the end of the year. This throws cold water on their narrative. This shows that the Fed is making less progress on inflation than the Fed or investors believe, and that rates have got to go higher for longer in order to put out this fire. But investors are still delusional in their hope that this Goldilocks scenario actually plays out. Now, in addition to stronger than expected inflation data, we also got a lot of weaker than expected data on the economy, starting with the Empire State Manufacturing Index for February, which actually didn't come out weaker than expected. It still came out weak, but less weak than expected. So maybe this was the strongest data point we got on the economy. The consensus was for a reading of minus 18.5, and that would have been a huge improvement over the minus 32.9 in January. And the number came out at minus 5.8, so not nearly as weak as expected, but still a weak number. But that's not the case for the other data that we got. Industrial production for January, which also came out on Wednesday, was expected to rise by 0.5. Instead, it came out unchanged, and they took the December decline of 0.7, and they revised that to a larger decline of 1%. Manufacturing output, however, was a bit better. It was expected to rise by 0.4. It rose by 1.8. But the prior month's decline, which was originally reported at minus 1.3, was increased to minus 1.8. But take a look at capacity utilization. That really collapsed. It was at 78.8 in December. That was revised down to 78.4. And instead of improving to 79.1, it went down to 78.3, which was even lower than the downward revision left the December month. And this is negative news because if industrial production is not growing, if capacity utilization is falling, this shows that we're not being as productive. Remember, we got those very strong consumer spending numbers from retail sales Yet at the same time, consumers are spending more. Industry is producing less because we didn't get any growth in industrial production. And we got a negative number in the Empire State Manufacturing Index. Even if it was a smaller negative number than markets expected, it was still a negative number. And in fact, the following day, we got even worse news on manufacturing coming from the Philly Fed. That index was supposed to come in at minus 7.2% in February, which would have been an improvement over the minus 8.9 from January. Instead, the index collapsed all the way down to minus 24.3. That blew away the low end of estimates, which was minus 9.8. The high end was minus 5. February was the sixth consecutive negative reading for the Philly Fed Manufacturing Index, and the minus 24.3 was the lowest that index has been since May of 2020. Now, what was going on in May of 2020? That was about the depth of the COVID lockdowns. So that's how weak the Philly Fed Manufacturing Index is. You have to go all the way back down to when the economy was closed. Now that it's fully reopened, we're all the way back down to the same level. 
that indicates a weak economy, if not a economy that's already in recession, one that is rapidly headed towards one. But again, this is also indicative of inflation because as consumers are spending more, as evidenced by retail sales, American industry is producing less, as is more than evidenced by Philly Fed manufacturing. What does that mean? That we have to make up the difference through imports. We have to have larger trade deficits, which puts more downward pressure on the U.S. dollar, which also puts upward pressure on domestic consumer prices. And finally, the last data point I want to bring up was housing starts and permits for January. Here we got weaker than expected numbers. The consensus estimate was for 1.365 million. Instead, we got 1.309 million. And the prior month's 1.38.2 million was revised down to 1.371. Permits also missing. They were expecting 1.35 million. We got 1.339 million. Although the prior month's permits were revised up slightly from 1.33 million to 1.337 million. But again, fewer houses are being built. Why? Because fewer Americans could afford to buy a new home because not only have prices gone up due to rising construction labor costs, but the cost of financing the purchase has also gone up thanks to rising mortgage rates. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I want to switch gears a little bit now and put into some historical perspective just how difficult it's going to be to put the inflation genie back in the bottle because everybody seems to have lost track of what's happened in the past. They think it's going to be very easy for the Fed to get inflation back down to 2%. In fact, they think that a Fed funds rate of about 5% is all that needs to happen. And in fact, after inflation goes right back down to 2%, everybody assumes that the Fed could just lower interest rates, that they don't have to stay at 5%, that as soon as the Fed achieves its objective of returning inflation to 2%, that it doesn't have to leave interest rates all the way up at 5%, that it can move them down. But if you look back at the 1970s experience, it shows that putting the inflation genie back in the bottle is a lot more difficult than people believe. That's why we actually have the expression that you don't let the inflation genie out of the bottle. If it really was so simple to put the inflation genie back in the bottle, we wouldn't have that expression. The reason we have it is because it's difficult and that's exactly what the 1970s experience proved. Now, if you go back and look at the inflation data from the 1960s, the total increase in the consumer price index in 1960 was just 1.46%. 1961, 1.07%. 1962, 1.2%. 1963, 1.24%. 1964, 1.28%. 1965, 1.59. So we had six consecutive years where inflation was below 2%. Of course, during none of those years did the Fed look at this as a problem. The Fed didn't say, oh my God, 
we're below 2%. This is not stability. We need to have more inflation. The Fed was fine with inflation below 2% because nobody would have argued that the inflation rate needed to be higher. Now, inflation first spiked up in 1966, where the rate was 3.02%. That was a problem. Now, in 1967, the rate came back down a bit to 2.77, but it didn't get back below 2%, and then it shot up. In 1968, it rose back up to 4.27%, and then in 1969, it was 5.46%. That was a huge problem. That was really the beginning of inflation running out of control. 1970, the rate moved up to 5.84%. 1971, 4.29%. 1972, it came back a bit to 3.27%. Maybe people thought, okay, it's starting to go away a little bit, but then it shot back up to 6.8%, and then it really got bad in 1974. That was the first year of double-digit inflation. Inflation hit 11.05% in 1974, down to 9.14% in 1975, 5.74% in 1976, 6 and a half in 1977, 7.63 in 1978, 11.25 in 1979. That was the year before Paul Volcker came in 1980 to finally do something about inflation. He came in in the summer of 1980 and the inflation rate in 1980 was 13.55%. Now, the reason I went over each one of those years was to show you how many years inflation was above 2% after having been below 2% for six consecutive years. In fact, it was actually below 2% for seven consecutive years if you count 1959, because in that year, the inflation rate was actually below 1%. It was just 0.69%. Now, Powell's goal is to return inflation to 2%. It took Paul Volcker all the way to 1986 to get inflation back down to 2%. In 1981, inflation fell to 10.33%. 1982, it was all the way down to 6.13%. And in 1983, it made it down to 3.21%. But then it ticked back up in 1984 to 4.3. It was 3.55 in 1985. Finally, in 1986, the rate got to 1.9. That was below 2% for the first time. And by the way, it didn't get back below or even hit 2% for another 12 years. And in fact, during the late 80s, we had a pretty good bout of relatively high inflation 4.08 in 1988, 4.83 in 1989, and 5.4 in 1990. That was the high watermark. There was a slight decline in the inflation rate in 1991. It went down to 4.23%. And that was the last time we had an inflation rate above 4% until 2021, when it was 4.7, and then 6.5% in 2022. In fact, it may be many years before the U.S. sees an inflation rate below 4% again. Also, think about this. The U.S. went 30 years between having inflation above 4% in 1991 and having another year of inflation above 4% in 2021. 
Now, one of the real reasons that inflation was so low for those 30 years was not that the Fed was so much more successful in containing it, but because the government succeeded in rigging the CPI. It was the huge change to the way consumer prices were calculated that is the main reason that inflation remains so low for so long. But the problem is now inflation is so high that even a rigged CPI can't hide it. With this in mind, to actually have an inflation rate of 2%, you're going to need to see a CPI of 1%, which isn't going to happen because the actual rate of price increases is double the official rate. So 1% is the new 2%, because we end up at 4%, it's going to feel like 8%. Because again, actual prices are rising twice as fast as the CPI indicates, because the CPI that we're using today no longer measures prices as accurately as it did back in the 1970s and the 1980s. Now, I've already mentioned that it took Paul Volcker six years to get the inflation rate back down to 2%. And then the Fed didn't even achieve that feat again for another 12 years. Powell seems to believe that he could bring inflation back down to 2% and keep it there indefinitely. Well, what did Paul Volcker have to do with interest rates to get inflation back down to 2% after fighting it for six years? Remember, Powell has only been fighting inflation for one year. When the 1970s began, the Fed's funds rate was around 4 or 5%. In fact, it averaged about 7.17% for all of 1970. It actually got as high as nine and three quarters and as low as 3% during the year. And the Fed funds rate steadily increased throughout the 1970s along with inflation. And by 1980, when Paul Volcker came in, that year, the average Fed funds rate was 13.35%. The low for the year was 7.65, and the high was 22%. Now, the Fed funds rate stayed high. It was in the double digits in 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, and 86, the year that inflation finally got down to 2%, at 1.9%. The average Fed funds for the year was 6.8%, but the high was 16.17% on the year, and the low was 556 In fact, the Fed funds rate ended that year, 1986, at 14.35%. That's what it took to get inflation back down to 2%. And in fact, Fed funds traded a high watermark in the double digits pretty much every year until 1991, where the high watermark for the Fed funds was 10.39%. Now, that was the last time there was a Fed funds rate that traded above 10%. That was, again, 30 years ago, the last time we had official inflation above 4% until 2021. Where is the Fed funds rate today? After all these rate hikes, it's only at 4.6%. That rate isn't even close to being high enough to rein in inflation. In fact, the lowest the Fed funds traded at at any point in time during the 1980s was 5.52% in 1987. But the average Fed funds rate 
1987 was 6.66%. And in fact, the high for the Fed funds rate during the year was 14.35%. We had much bigger swings in the Fed funds back then than we have now. The Fed has much tighter control on where it's allowing these rates to move in the current year. There's very little swing now in Fed funds. In fact, look at 2021, the last year that we had 0% interest rates, the high for the Fed funds rate was 0.1 and the low was 0.05. The year opened at 0.09, it closed at 0.07 for an average of 0.08. Barely any change because the Fed had total control over interest rates and it was doing that with massive quantitative easing. So it's pretty clear if you look at how high interest rates had to rise and how long they had to stay there during the 1980s to eventually bring inflation back down to 2%, we've barely started. A 4.6% Fed funds rate is nothing. We need to see a Fed funds rate double or triple where we are right now. The problem is the economy can't handle it the way it was able to handle it back then because we didn't have anywhere near the debt. The national debt didn't even hit a trillion until 1980. It's close to 32 trillion now. So the economy can't withstand an inflation fight. The fight itself would kill the economy because it's a phony economy. It's a bubble. And it would produce a worse financial crisis than the one that we had in 2008, which is why the Fed is not going to be able to succeed in fighting inflation. It's impossible. Investors still don't understand this predicament. They still think that we can go back down to low inflation because we had low inflation for so long. That was an aberration, and it was mainly achieved as a result of sleight of hand. And a lot of it was a function of our ability to export all the inflation that we created to China and the rest of the world. That's not going to happen anymore. In fact, a lot of the inflation that we exported is going to be coming back, especially when the dollar really starts to fall, which I believe is going to start happening. And that's going to really accelerate this process. But at some point, the markets are going to come to terms with economic reality. And that reality is that unless interest rates go much higher from here, and that produces a huge decline in stocks, real estate, a massive recession, or financial crisis, we either have to suffer all of that or inflation is here to stay. We can't live in this dream world where the Fed only raises interest rates to about 5% or slightly higher, and, and that's all it takes to bring inflation back down to 2%, and then everything is great, and the Fed could lower interest rates back down to a number that a highly indebted economy has been used to over the last decade or so. That can't happen. It's one or the other. Either everything comes collapsing down because the Fed actually fights inflation or the Fed stops fighting inflation to try to keep everything propped up and we have to live with high inflation indefinitely. And when investors realize that high inflation is here to stay, that's when you're going to see a big repricing in the dollar, which is lower, and gold and silver, which will be much higher. But because I've been talking about inflation in the 1970s, I also want to talk about taxation in the 1970s. One of the reasons is that inflation is, in fact, a tax. It's the way government finances its spending. If it doesn't have the guts to officially raise taxes, it prints money and it raises the cost of living instead. 
And so we get higher prices instead of higher taxes. But during the 1970s, people got both. And not really because the government was raising taxes. Inflation was raising taxes because people's incomes were going up in nominal terms, not in real terms. And that was pushing them into ever higher income tax brackets. They called it bracket creep. And the reason was there were 25 separate income tax brackets during all of the 1970s. And that didn't change until the election of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Today, we have seven separate income tax brackets. But when Ronald Reagan left office in 1988, he shrunk those 25 tax brackets all the way down to two. The only brackets that existed in 1988 were 15% and 28%. That was it. That was one of the major accomplishments of the Reagan presidency was taking a tax code that had 25 separate brackets and reducing them to just two, 15 and 28. And those brackets were indexed for inflation. None of the 25 brackets that we had before Reagan were indexed for inflation. That's why inflation was so insidious, because not only did it raise the cost of living, but it pushed people into higher brackets. So not only did inflation in the 1970s mean higher prices, it actually also meant higher income taxes because everybody kept being pushed into a higher bracket. And not only did Ronald Reagan succeed in reducing the number of brackets from 25 to 2, look at the top rate, 28% versus a top rate of 70% during the 1970s. In fact, the 70% top tax bracket was the one that was in effect when Ronald Reagan was first elected president. But to give you an example of how much inflation raised people's taxes during the 1970s, in 1970, the top tax bracket kicked in at an income of $100,000 per person or $200,000 for a family. To put that in perspective, if you adjust it for the official CPI, which says that prices are about seven and a half times higher today than they were in 1970, a $100,000 income is the equivalent to a $750,000 income and a $200,000 income is the equivalent to $1.5 million. But that's the amount of income that it took to get you into the 70% bracket. By the way, you were in the 50% tax bracket in 1970 if as an individual you earned $22,000 a year or as a family you earned $40,000 a year. So to put those into perspective, that's like an individual earning $165,000 a year or a family earning $330,000. By the way, today's top tax bracket of 37%, which doesn't include the 3.9% Obama tax, doesn't kick in for married couples until they have $647,850 filing jointly or for single filers until they have annual income of $539,900. But in 1970, people hit the 36% bracket, so just 1% below, with household incomes as low as $24,000 and with individual incomes as low as $12,000. In today's numbers using the CPI, that would be a 36% rate for individuals with 
annual incomes of just 90,000 and for married couples, 180,000. But the point I'm trying to make here, not just that taxes were much higher back in the 1970s and actually hit lower income people much harder than they do today. A lot of people want to act as if the tax code is now skewed and is not taxing the wealthy nearly as much now as we were back then. If you look at the income tax before Ronald Reagan, the income tax was hitting non-wealthy people a lot harder than it hits them today. So if we really were going to start taxing the super rich at the high rates that we taxed them back in the 1970s, 1980s, then we also have to sock it to the middle class because they have to get hit with much higher taxes now than they're paying because their tax brackets are a lot lower than they were in the 1970s. Where is the government getting all the money now that it's not collecting in taxes? It's getting it from inflation. The money is being printed. We are running enormous deficits that we didn't run back then. Sure, we had some deficits in the 1970s, but they pale in comparison to the deficits we're running today. And that is how the government is making up the gap. It's not taxing the people nearly as much as it used to, but it's continuing to spend. And the way we're bearing that burden is through higher inflation. The other point, though, is how people were pushed into higher brackets. Somebody who saw their income double from 50000 a year to $100,000 a year from 1970 to 1980 didn't see a real increase in their purchasing power. Their purchasing power stayed the same. In fact, if you look at the official CPI numbers, prices are three and a half times higher today than they were in 1980, whereas they're seven and a half times higher than they were in 1970. So somebody who earned $50,000 in 1970 was earning $100,000 in 1980. They didn't really have any increase in their income, but they had a big increase in their marginal tax rate because they went from a 62% marginal tax bracket to a 70% marginal tax bracket. In other words, their income taxes were raised by 13%, even though no tax increases were passed. Inflation did the government's dirty work for it without having to get their hands dirty by officially raising rates. And in fact, the percentage increase was even bigger for lower income workers. Somebody in 1970 who was earning $2,000 a year was in the 19% bracket. But now the same person who was earning $4,000 a year in 1980, which was basically the same amount of money, found themselves in the 22% bracket. That's a 16% increase in their tax rate. And then another way that inflation hurt people was reducing the return on their investments, particularly interest that they earned on bonds, because it's the nominal rate of interest that gets taxed. You don't get to subtract inflation before calculating your taxes. For example, let's say you're getting a 10% yield on a bond, but inflation is 8%. You don't have 2% positive interest rates because you're paying a tax on that 8%. And if you're in the 70% bracket after taxes, you're only left with a 3% return. But if inflation is 8%, you're not getting positive 2%, you're getting negative 5%. Inflation is turning a gain into a loss. The government just adds insult to injury by making you pay taxes when not only did you not have income, 
you actually had a loss, but you paid a tax on that loss, which basically means your income tax bracket was more than 100% of your income. You know, it really is too bad that we don't still have the same two tax brackets that were left in place when Ronald Reagan left office in 1988, 15% and 20%. That was a much better system than the one we had today. It was the closest we've ever come to having a flat tax ever since we made the mistake of having any income tax at all in 1913. But unfortunately, as soon as Reagan left office and George Bush Sr. stepped in, one of the first things he did was agree to a tax hike. Of course, that's why he had one term and not two. He had made the pledge, read my lips, no new taxes. And of course, he allowed for an additional tax bracket to be added in 1991. That was the 31% bracket. And of course, as soon as that happened, we got more taxes under Clinton. He increased it to, he added two more brackets, increasing the total to five. Bush added one more bracket, bringing the total to six. And then Obama made it seven. But I want to wrap up today's podcast by wishing everybody a happy Washington's birthday. We get a three-day weekend. The markets are closed on Monday. But remember to always refer to Monday's holiday as Washington's birthday, because that's what we want to honor the father of our country. We want to honor the first president of the United States, not all the presidents that followed. There is no greater American than General George Washington. George Washington won the Revolutionary War. They offered to make George Washington the king of America, but he turned it down and accepted the presidency instead. He was an incredible man, and he needs to be honored with a holiday. In fact, the official name of the holiday is still Washington's birthday, even though everybody calls it President's Day. And I believe that's because of the way the holiday was marketed by retailers who had President's Day sales. And that's because while Washington's birthday falls on February 22nd, Lincoln's birthday falls on February 12th. So 10 days earlier, a lot of the northern states also celebrated Lincoln's birthday as a holiday. The southern states did not. But the retailers were trying to capitalize on both presidents' birthdays. And so they started referring to the holiday as President's Day, and it's continued ever since. But I prefer to honor George Washington by himself. He needs to stand out from all the presidents who followed him, even other great presidents. He's the man that we need to honor. And the reason that Washington's birthday is celebrated on the third Monday of February is because that's the closest day to Washington's actual birthday that would enable people to have a three-day weekend. So enjoy your three-day weekend, and remember that we're honoring George Washington and not Joe Biden.